coffee culture is brewed for connection. Under the guise of coffee, we've been meeting in cafes for centuries. Today is no different. Coffee Culture, the podcast, explores the meetup. If you are a coffee enthusiast, maybe seeking modern love on a coffee date or want some health hacks, we'll dig into that too. I'm Holly Shannon. Come wrap your hands around a hot cup of connection with me on Coffee Culture. So hello, Coffee Culture family. Um, I'm here today with Laura Cathcart-Robbins. And I found her through a friend. I'm all about connection. As you know, the podcast is all about our connection through the coffee meetup, but sometimes it's not the coffee meetup. And we have a mutual friend uh, who also has been on this show, Christopher Lewis. And so we're going to talk a little bit about um, connection through friends and maybe through the fact that we both were at a podcasting conference but didn't meet each other there. So we'll probably dive into that a little bit. But what I'd like to say, what I learned a little bit from combing through articles that Laura wrote and listening some reels on Instagram, I encourage you to f- go follow her. Um, and and I actually scraped a little bit of her language from here, so I'm not taking credit for this, but um, she turned a viral essay into a podcast called The Only One in the Room. And she turned her pain into pages with a memoir called Stash that's coming out shortly. So we are going to dive in. And I just want to present and say hello to Laura. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show, Holly. I I am good. Actually, today, my memoir is out. Today, it is out in the world. Today is pub day. Yeah. Oh, how did I plan that? I got COVID and I had to push her out a week. Yeah. Who knew it would land on the day that on her book came on the shelves? Birthday it is today. Yes. Oh, I'm so, so excited. That's a cool connection. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, and and yes, I I Christopher is just he is one of those great connectors. Like he's always looking to see, you know, he could be a matchmaker, right? Well, mm-hmm. he's, in, he's in dating, so mm-hmm. he's in the perfect <laughs> so place in a way. But um, yeah, I'm so glad that he connected us and and thank you for that that intro. That was a really unique intro, actually. I um, I like the way you kind of cobbled it together. And um, yes, my viral article turned into this podcast called "The Only One in the Room." And um, stash my life in hiding. My debut memoir, um, Atria Simon and Schuster is out right now uh and it's um it's an addiction memoir it's a memoir about ending a marriage it's a memoir about me as a mom fighting to be in my kids lives it's a memoir about falling in love so it has like all the those themes in it it also comes from the place of privilege that intersection of privilege and race and addiction which is unique so um, I'm I'm excited that it's out in the world and excited to share my story with people and excited to talk about coffee. <laughs> All right. So let's start with something easy before we yeah. dive into the deep stuff. So you're a coffee drinker. So yeah, let me tell you a little bit my journey with coffee. About I would my love that. Rather. Um, never drank coffee until I was in my 20s. I had a in the 90s, I had the only Black-owned PR entertainment PR firm in Los Angeles. And so it was quite happening. I was like on retainer with all the major studios and labels, and I did all their 
urban acts. I'm putting air quotes around that for people who are just listening. That means black. Um, so if they had a black show or a black artist, I would be handed part of their publicity or all of it to, to handle. And it was quite the time, but what I, what happened when I started running my own company was my, my hours were from like, you know, six in the morning because I'm in LA and a lot of my clients were back East. So I'd be in the office at six or six 30 and then there'd be parties and events. So I was tired. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so coffee was that 6 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. necessity then. And the way that I drank it, because I didn't like the taste, was with about two to three inches of sugar in the bottom of the cup. Yes, I know. Have some and coffee then, with my sugar. Yes. I wanted coffee <laughs> ice cream. So that's basically yes. what I made was coffee ice cream. And I would drink a couple cups every day. And I did that for years with all that sugar um, into my forties. And then uh, when, so when I was, I was 44, when I got sober, that was uh, almost 15 years ago. And, and so coffee became absolutely the way to connect with people then, because in the recovery community, it's all about meeting for coffee. It's mm -hmm. coffee after the meeting, it's coffee before the meeting, it's coffee. That's how you connect because we don't meet for drinks anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Alcoholic mm -hmm. beverages. Um, so we meet for coffee. So every coffee house became like a haven for me during mm -hmm. that time, especially those first couple of years. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, and it's, and it's still, it's like if, if there's someone that's new to the program and I want to sit down with them, I'm not taking them to dinner. I'm not taking them to lunch. I'm going to take them to coffee. I love this. You yeah. know, this was the premise behind my show is that the coffee meetup is merely an excuse to be together, to gather and to hold each other up. Um, and that's exactly what you were doing, but nobody really got it when I explained to them coffee culture. It's, yes. it's about the meetup. It's also about the brew if you like it, um, right. but but essentially it's about connection, right? We're all looking for it some way and coffee is just a tool. It is absolutely about connection. And there's something, there's something about socializing without a beverage that makes other people uncomfortable. Like mm. it's the first thing, right? You ask somebody that when they come into your home, can I offer you a drink? Mm -hmm. And so if you don't take water, and you don't take an, an alcoholic beverage, then people are like, well, I want to give you something. <laughs> I want something in your hand. When mm -hmm. you're like walking around a party, people want some kind of beverage in your hand. So coffee is a really good way to kind of comfort other people <laughs> about Absolutely. your Right. Absolutely. And that need to have something in your hand or to offer. Yeah. So yeah. Our, it's it's our connection to hospitality. Um, yes. it, it shows that we're inviting somebody in to spend some time with us, at least the amount of time it takes to have your glass of water, your coffee. Yeah. But it's, it's all part of it, right? It's part of polite society, I think, mm. to, to imbibe something, like to partake that way. Mm-hmm. And um, so the other part of my coffee journey is when I was 47, got this really weird heart pounding for about seven days from the time that I woke up until about six o'clock at night. And it scared me. I I have not 
I, I, as far as I know, I didn't have any um, experience with anxiety, but this is what I read about, but this didn't feel like my mind. It just felt like my heart. So I went to the doctor, one of my doctors, and he's like, why don't you stop coffee and see what happens? Mm -hmm. um, so I did. And it went away the next day. Never had it again. Wow. No idea whether or not it was actually tied to that. It mm -hmm. could have been like a temporary thing. So since I've been 47, I'm 58 now. I haven't had caffeine, but I still have a morning cup of coffee. It's just decaf because mm -hmm. I love the ritual. Yes. I love getting up. I love, So I have it with oat milk. I have mm -hmm. a oat milk. Oh, I make an oat milk um, decaf latte at home. And that's mm. what I order when I go out. That's my coffee order. That sounds great. It's so yummy. And mm -hmm. I don't put any sugar in it. <laughs> so the days of the, uh, the coffee ice cream gone. Gone. Oh, and do so you know who makes yeah. uh, Blue Bottle? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Blue no, no, Bottle, though, makes a really lovely cappuccino or latte with oat milk. So just oh, nice. going nice. around. Okay. Okay. I'm sure you know a lot about every coffee drink. <laughs> Uh, probably too much. I, yeah. I love it. And I am a, I'm a coffee snob. Like I, I like make no apologies. Like I, I like good coffee. I really do. Yeah. But you know, and I love the ritual. That's my morning thing too. I have a French press and it's very, you know, there's a certain amount of scoops that go in with the hot water and you stir it up and you wait four minutes and that four minutes I'm stretching and it's just part of my morning routine and um yeah I'm, yeah I'm a coffee i totally snob. get that it's yeah. it's mine too it's part of i do the meditation i work out five days a week i'm in my workout clothes because i worked out mm -hmm. i think you and i talked about it. i was like is it on video because i was trying to figure yeah. out like when i was going to work out but oh sorry no, no. <laughs> I might work out shirt underneath because i'm going to like a pilates class for my first time later so i'm like just gonna wear my clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't ever done Pilates, but um, me neither. This is my first time. Oh, it's your first time ever. Oh wow. Yes. Yeah, All yeah, right. yeah. I've done mat Pilates, which I hate because I have neck issues and I just end up hurting my neck. Uh, but this is with the reformer, which I've never done. I've heard great things about it, and so um, I guess I'm a Pilates reformer virgin today. Wow. I break. <laughs> exciting yeah yeah i'll let you know how it goes so you can decide if you want to do it <laughs> but i'd love to dive uh a little deeper um if you're okay with that um i know my coffee culture family does love coffee conversation but i definitely want to you have such a an incredible history and um Today, your book is out, which is just crazy. I'm so happy that we're here together for that. Uh, if I had known, I would have like had balloons or something here. But anyway, yes, exactly. Exactly. So um, what I'd like to do is, you know, there was a part uh, that I caught in one of your um, Instagram reels, um, which go immediately deep. So people go watch them. 
Um, but I, I would like you to talk about your book, but there was something that stood out for me in one of the real. So I'm going to go back to it. I'm not going to say it yet. I want to see if it actually just comes up. Okay. Um, but would you like to share a little bit about, um, you know, it's natural for your writing to become a podcast. I think you see like the the value of your content and you want it in people's ears as well. Um but to turn it into a memoir, that's a bigger fish to fry. Like that, that's a lot of work making a book. So um, what made you decide to do all of that? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of the other way around. Um, so when I've, I've been a writer, like as far as I can remember, I had like a little line a day diary when I was like six and seven that I wrote in. I thought I wrote in it every day. I recently like unearthed it from a trunk and it was pretty sporadic actually, but in my mind I was writing every day, but I, I, you know, I did that for, for years and I wrote stories and um, always was writing, always writing. And then once I got sober, I lost the ability to read or write. (laughs) And that sounds really like hyperbolic, but it's not that I literally, I typed emails, I wrote thank you notes, but I couldn't read or write for pleasure anymore. Hmm. Uh, there was no, it was like something had snapped shut in me or gone dormant. And the first like five years of sobriety, I was kind of like, okay, maybe this is, this will come back. There were, you know, there were other priorities for my system to come back online first. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a repair going on. So this will probably come back at some point. And, and it really didn't feel like it was going to. So I started taking writing classes and it was really hard for me because I was frustrated with the fact that everybody else seemed to be just like flowing in class and writing and I could barely get anything down on the page. And what I got down honestly wasn't very good and it was short and it wasn't honest and it wasn't real. Like I could tell all these things, but I couldn't do any better. And, but I kept going and I kept going and I took a book proposal class in 2016. I didn't know what I wanted to write about, but I wanted to see like how you put together a book proposal and, In this really like long, I covered years and years and years of my life in this proposal. In the middle of that was this really meaty, tender, vulnerable story of me in the bottom, at the bottom, like rock bottom in my addiction, um, being in the middle of a divorce at that time, going to treatment for that, and then meeting someone and, and, and not like hooking up with them, but against my will falling in love with them Mm. and like this can't be anything because this is ridiculous like you know we met in drug treatment in another state Mm. this can't be so like me kind of battling myself and uh, outside circumstances and so that was in the middle of this very long proposal i did the proposal was rejected um by everyone i sent it to but one of the rejections uh this very generous agent named Anjali Singh, she didn't send me a form letter back. She said, you're a beautiful writer, but memoir is the hardest thing to sell and no one knows who you are. So these are the things I suggest. You get some articles published, maybe start a podcast, do storytelling, look at the moth, 
um, build an author's platform. You cannot sell a book, not a memoir, unless you have a platform. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah, really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And and she's oh, the first thing she said was start a blog. That was the first thing she said because basically she had looked me up and couldn't find me. Mm-hmm. I I didn't have anything to show online, and so oh, and she said speaking engagements too. So I um. I was stunned that she took the time to write that to me. I tried to write her again and it like it bounced back, like submissions are closed until whatever. So I never got back in touch with her, but I started that blog that year and I did it every week for two years. It was quite painful because I still couldn't write very well. Mm. I was just like, let me just get something out there. Let me get into this exercise and um the the writer's retreat I went to in 2018, that was Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strayed. Mm, God, I love them. Me too. I was, was that at like Cropolo or something? Because they they did it there often, or at least Elizabeth Gilbert did. Yeah, this was at 1440 Multiversity in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Oh, yeah. I've heard of that one too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah similar. And mm-hmm. it was three days. And so, and, you know, they said bring blank notebooks, like at least four. I'm like, four. Blank notebooks. Yeah. I, can't, I can't even write a card. Okay. Right. And so, but I did, I brought the notebooks and um, I, I was in a writer's group at that time with um, women I had never met in person. And we all went, we all went to this thing, which was really cool. So I had this amazing experience. There were 600 people there, but I was the only black one um, out of all, even the people that worked there, Holly, like, there was there were I didn't see that coming. Yeah. So I had this dual experience, right? I was with these two writers that whose books I keep on my desk that mm-hmm. I admire so much. I was learning so much. I filled up those notebooks with all the writing assignments they gave us. Mm-hmm. But I had no affinity. And it was the first time for me ever that I'd been in a space with that many people and been the only one. Interesting. Did you did you find solace though in the group of women that you traveled to this event with? Because you said they were your original group, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like I had a great time. It was wonderful sitting with them, but they're all white. Mm-hmm. So it's it's because it wasn't just like a business conference, right? Where we were like learning an operating system. We were we were being asked to be vulnerable with each other. And like, for instance, I, I had these two experiences, one where um, we were sectioned off into groups. So I wasn't with my writer's group and we had a break and I kind of walked over to this group of, I knew they were moms because I'd heard them talking before and I kind of joined them. And one of them was bragging about how her son had been pulled over by the police and argued his way out of a ticket and how proud she was of him. Mm. And I... I I couldn't back away from that group fast enough. I wanted, I didn't want them to see my tears. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them kind of got it and they changed the subject, but there was no one for me to then go, can you believe what just happened? Yeah. Cause you're thinking my sons would not have had that experience. Oh no, no. I mean, I, I would, it it would, it might be the end of them if they ever did. I have goosebumps. That's crazy. Wow. And then we had another assignment where we were paired with, it was, you know, 300 of us or 300 and something of us were, everyone was paired off and we sat on the floor and faced each other and we were supposed to read our assignments to each other. And I picked up my notebook to read and I said, dear 
we had to write it a, a letter to somebody and I wrote it to black church families. I don't mm. even remember what the assignment was, but we had to write to a category of people. And as soon as I said the words, my partner put down her notebook and started bawling. And she went on for the, we had five minutes and she filled the entire five minutes by saying, I, I feel so sorry for African-Americans. I voted for so-and-so. I cried when that black guy got killed and she didn't read me her assignment. She didn't let me read mine. And she just kind of pity spewed all over me. Mm. She said she felt so sorry for me for being black and Oof. felt guilty for the white people of this country. It was so inappropriate. It was Too so much, burdensome. Yeah. And again, I had no affinity. There was no one. This was the same conference. There was no one I could turn to and say, can you believe what just happened to me? So I wrote about it when I got home, submitted it to the Huffington Post. That's the article that went viral. So, oh, okay. Um, and from that, um, the idea, because a lot of the comments I got back were hashtag the only one in the room, because that's what I was. I was the only mm. one in the room. So it was apparently a very popular hashtag. I didn't know that. So when I sat down with Scott, we were thinking about the next step, you know, in my author's platform, which was the podcast. We're like, why don't we call it this? Why don't we call it the only one in the room and tell those Perfect. stories? Not just, you know, the story of the black woman in a room full of 600 white people, but, you know, anybody who's ever felt alone in a room full of people and tell those stories. Well, and it started for you at a very young age when you started school. Um, I did read uh, a little article about that. Um, do you want to share that? I'm not going to give my version. I'd rather oh, it come yeah. from you. Um, well, I mean, it's it's been my whole life. I've been the only Black person in most of the spaces. Um, I was the only Black kid in my school for a while. And then, um, and then after that, they were like three grades younger than me. So I didn't have a Black classmate or a Black peer. For longer than that however it was fine mm -hmm. like i really had a i had a lovely childhood in cambridge massachusetts at the cambridge montessori school i i had really good friends i was super social um i didn't miss the absence i didn't miss i mean i didn't the absence of someone that looked like me wasn't as impactful as it was later on mm. but i also got used to being the only black person and um, I think the article you're talking about is the article I wrote about uh, my principal, Jackie yeah. Scott. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she, she, so yeah, my mom had switched schools. She had switched schools because there was no one black there. I think I had gone to like four schools in Cambridge. <laughs> and when there was a promise that there would be more black students. And when that promise wasn't fulfilled, my mom pulled me out. And finally, she found the Cambridge Montessori School. And I was looking around when I first got there, and it was like the Brady Bunch set. It was like all these. And for those of you who aren't familiar, the Brady Bunch was a really iconic show in the the 70s where there were, it was a family with two, three boys and three girls. And the girls all had long blonde hair. Um, and the boys were, you know, just, they were all white kids. And, but the hair was this really big thing because they all had this really, like curtains of blonde hair. And that's what it looked like. It looked like I was on the set of the Brady Bunch. And I'm looking around at my mom thinking, this isn't any better than where I was before because I'm I'm also the only one here. 
And then this woman comes in to the room to greet all these new students and parents. And she's in a dashiki, which is traditional African, you know, garb. She has an Afro at a time when most black people were straightening their hair. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she was brown skinned and she wasn't wearing any makeup, which was, you know, kind of, it was kind of hippie time. So there were a lot of people that weren't wearing makeup and she had command of that room, man. Like everybody paid attention as soon as she walked in. She was respected. You could feel it. She was admired. You could feel that. And at that moment, in a way that I had never been before, I was so proud to be Black because the most respected, admired person in the room was Black. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it it, it never, I wasn't not proud of it before, mm-hmm. but I hadn't ever been filled with that sense of pride until that moment. Well, and to see somebody in leadership, right? Yeah. It wasn't just another mom walking in the room. Right. Yes. She commanded the space. So she did. Yes, she did. I love that. Yeah. So um, in your book, you also talk about um, your addictions. Yes. And your sobriety. Yes. Um, what I found interesting, I saw in one of your reels, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually didn't start uh, anything until your children were born. Did did I hear that correctly in, in one of the reels? And, and I only asked that question because I also want to ask, did you have postpartum depression? Was that what brought that on? Um, both of those are very good questions. I... So my history with with drug and alcohol use is really interesting. Um, when I was 19, I spent a year like doing cocaine with a pimp slash drug dealer guy. Not 365 days, but I would drop in his place on the weekends. And it, it wasn't like a dark drug den. It was quite glamorous and fun. Like mm-hmm. he was, he would have these big parties. I was like one of his favorites and we would just get high on the weekends and then I'd go back to my regular life. But I did that for a year. Um, and then one day um, I was there a day longer than I was supposed to be. I was, I was like doing Coke with him and it spilled over into a Monday and I was supposed to pick up my mom at the airport and I had somebody else pick her up because I wasn't done. And she and my dad um, got together with me, her in person, my dad by phone from Florida And they're like, we're worried about you. You're getting really thin. We want you to go to a 12-step program. And I was like, oh, hell no. I don't have a problem. Because to me, I didn't. Because I it's just weekends, right? You thought, yeah, "Yeah, that's not addiction if it's just the weekends, right? Exactly. So I stopped. I never went back there again, like lost his phone number to show them that I was fine. And then through my 20s, you know, so I was 19 then. So throughout my 20s, I drank socially, didn't really like it. But I drank socially. I had fun. You know, I partied with people, but it wasn't that big of a deal. Drugs weren't really part of the story then. It was more just like, let's go out and party. And I kind of gave you a clip of my life as a publicist. It was kind of required when I would go out, we would have drinks. And um, I was 32 when my first son was born. So I got married and... um had him. And then uh, I was 34 
when my second son was born. And to answer your question, I thought maybe I did have postpartum depression. I'm sure that it was undiagnosed. But I asked my doctor and he kind of waved me off and said, oh, just have a glass of wine at night. You'll be fine. <laughs> it's, it's it's the dirty I, little secret, by the way. Yeah. And Do- doctors do not, uh, they do not talk to mothers about the possibility of something real happening in the body called postpartum depression. They're like, oh, the blues. Oh, you're just under, you, yeah. you're not getting enough sleep. Have a glass of wine. So, you know, you sleep a little. Yeah. It's, it's a shame. Dismissed. I think yeah. probably less now, mm-hmm. but this was in yes. you know, 1998 mm-hmm. and 1999. Yes. Um, his thinking was that having the babies back to back the way that I did was probably, I just needed time to recover. He's a really nice guy. I think he just really missed it. And mm-hmm. and there's this thing about me where I present really well regardless. So I'm put together. I walk in. You rarely see me dragging, almost never. Like I don't exhibit any symptoms of anything ever. Mm-hmm. And that's intentional. Mm-hmm. Not so much in sobriety. You know, I've become more real with who I am. But up until then, um, you got a front, you know, you got the facade, like a film studio where it's just the front of the building. <laughs> There's nothing behind it. Yes. So, um, you know, not that he shouldn't have further investigated, but I'm sure to him, I didn't look like I did. Mm-hmm. So, um, but another doctor, my general practitioner about a year later, maybe two years later, uh, said, look, you're not sleeping. Let's get you Ambien. Oh. To- Yes. <laughs> and I I had not heard of it at that point. It was, mm. um, I, I don't think it was new, but it was not known to me. So I, I kind of set myself up so I could try it that night. My, my kids were, were little, they were like three and four. And so I had my mom in town, my, my ex-husband who was then my husband, um, was away for work a lot. So there were a lot of nights where it was just us. And this was one of those weeks where it was just me and the kids. And so my mom came to run interference in case they woke up so that I could get a good night's sleep. And I, you know, I took that first Ambien and I fell in love. Like I loved it. I loved the feeling I had before I fell asleep. I loved the sleep that I had. I loved the dreams. I woke up feeling refreshed and energetic. I wanted to hang out with my kids. Like it was, everything was better. Mm-hmm. After that ambient, after that good night's sleep. And, you know, I write in my book that the first, my first, the first two words that popped into my mind after the first one were, again, please. Like, mm-hmm. I just wanted it again. And, and it, and, and it was, it was uh, like that Hemingway quote. It was gradually and then suddenly. Um, you know, at first it was as prescribed. I took, it, I got 30 pills. It took me a year to take them. Mm-hmm. Second year, I was taking one every night, also as prescribed. By this, by the third year, I my tolerance was rising. So I needed like one and a half or one and a quarter to get to sleep. And then probably by the end of that year, I was taking two a night to get to sleep. And then, you know, six years in, which is when my addiction really took a hold of me, I was taking as many as I could get at night. Interesting. And, and, and mm-hmm. also having to have, like, I would chip like the tips of the pills off and swallow them during the day 
they wouldn't put me to sleep, but they would regulate my system because I was in detox and withdrawal without them. Wow. So I needed to have some ambient in my system at all times, but it couldn't be enough to get me loaded or else I would go to sleep. So it was this, and I, and Holly, I was the parent association president at my kid's school. I had just been asked to join the board. I was throwing dinner parties. I played tennis with the girls. I was working out every day. I was, you know, going to premieres. So I had to fortify myself so that I could continue to live that life. So no one would examine what was happening with me in the ambient. Hmm. You know, a lot of people didn't realize um, the doctors said it was not addictive if you asked because uh, I went on it too for for postpartum depression. So I, I'm you're preaching to the choir, as they say. Um, I did not run into the same um, level that you yeah. did, um, but the doctors were not very clear about that. And um, wow, that's uh, it's amazing how you created um this like twisted routine to get through the day using it like little bits of it so that you could stay level and present and present a certain way uh that wow i can't even imagine how hard that was for you i mean it was herculean isn't the right word it was more sisyphusian you know like that boulder that i just kept pushing up the hill and mm -hmm. i never got to the top Every day required so much energy. I was exhausted. I was mm -hmm. exhausted. But without Ambien, I couldn't sleep at this point. I had messed up all like bludgeoned all those receptors that really yeah. melatonin and like allow you and serotonin, like everything that was good, my brain wouldn't release unless I took Ambien. So I was in a constant state of anxiety without it. Wow. So would you say then Ambien was the first was your gateway into it that maybe led to, I don't know, other drugs or alcohol or something like that? Or, Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, Ambien was the addiction. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't it didn't lead me anywhere else. Eventually, okay. I needed alcohol to boost it. Mm. I didn't drink just for drinking sake, kind of ever, except for in my 20s in that period that I described, which felt very typical. Yeah, it, I think that was for sure. But... Um, but yeah, I kept, you know, vodka in my rain boots in my closet so that I could drink enough to boost the ambience effect, to give it the kick that it needed so that it would work the way I needed it to work. Jeez. I mean, I went to treatment for an ambient addiction. I hadn't, I wasn't doing opiates. I wasn't into cocaine. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't drinking aside from that. I went to treatment to kick ambient. That's crazy. What it a is. crazy story. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah. you just don't hear that. It's always about opioids and things like that. I mean, I like I said, I took Ambient. So like it feels um it's it's so accessible to everybody. Like you just don't think of it as something that somebody would need to get sober from. Totally. You just don't. No, and and I, I always like to mention that. It's a good drug when it's used as prescribed. It can be a really effective drug for a lot of people. It's not meant to be used for more than 10 days in a row, ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's supposed to reset your system. And for that purpose, it's excellent. Mm -hmm. And for most people, it is non-habit forming when used as prescribed. Right. But I used it so far out of prescription, the doctors were lenient because I had, I had 
you know, my inability to sleep prior to the Ambien was, was so great. And my anxiety that came with the inability to sleep was so great. I really felt like I was, I needed it in order to show up for my family the way that I wanted to. And the doctors did what they needed to do. Yeah. Because you were good at building the facade, right? Excellent at it. Yeah. Are you still building them? Oh, no, gosh, I've been, it's it's like I built a city and I've been taking it down stone by stone for the last 15 years. Nice, <laughs> like nice. I got this building cleared and I've got this building cleared and yeah, no, I, I am not building them anymore. I am um, dismantling I, it all. I am dismantling it and it's work. It is, it, it's, it's not like yes. poof, it's gone. I, I have to, you know, it's. It's that chop wood, carry water thing, you know, sometimes just keeping my head down and doing the work. And I happen to be with a man who I've been with for the last almost 15 years, who is the opposite of me. He never had a front. He never presented himself as anything other than he was. And because we met in treatment, um, when I finally went in July of 2008, um, I was not trying to impress him. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> At all. Like I wasn't fronting there because I didn't care about any of those people. Right, right. And I was devastated. I was just devastated to be there. But so he met me without the facade. And that's who he was first attracted to. And that's how who he's now fallen in love with. That's so beautiful. yeah, I am I I learned from him how to be myself because that's the that's the person he appreciates the most. Hey, coffee lovers, I have two quick announcements. I am opening a YouTube channel at Holly Shannon, and I'm going to have all of coffee culture on there. So you can capture the little shorts for five minutes here and there, or you can capture the full length interviews. Also, my book Zero to Podcast is on Amazon and it's on my website. And it is the how to guide to start your podcast really fast and get your voice and ideas on iTunes and Spotify like I did makes a great holiday gift for you, perhaps a graduation present, or maybe it's your New Year's resolution. Both links are in the show notes. And now back to our show, Coffee Culture. There's another piece of connection I'd like to tap into. Again, it was a reel that I listened to that you posted, where we identify ourselves as uh, mother, sister, spouse, lover, friend, all of these different things. And because we live to, um, a lot of us live in that place of identity, right? Who, who are we? Yeah. And if somebody asks you, oh, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, you know, we fall into that. So the reel that um, sparked me was you had gone to the grocery store mm-hmm. and you instinctively went to put milk in your cart and you don't even like milk. In fact, we know you like oat milk. <laughs> um, and it was really, uh, I actually had a moment when you were talking about that, that you identified, you know, you were part of a couple. That was your identification. You were the wife half of 
of this. And in doing so, you would go to the grocery store and you would get milk. Like that was part of your life. And I know this seems like a strange thing to back into this, but what I sensed is at that moment, and here's where connection comes in for me, you lost your connection to self, to who you actually were, and you couldn't necessarily fall back on the the identities that are, you know, are in our back pocket. You show up to a cocktail party and someone says, oh, so what do you do or who are you? And right away you fall, oh, I'm a podcaster, I'm a writer, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, whatever. And you had like this existential crisis with a carton of milk. I did. So um, can I ask you to share a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for asking me about that. I think you know, I, I read this article a couple of years ago about role exhaustion for women. That we are we we occupy so many different roles, it is just exhausting for us. And it really hit home for me. I um I identified so strongly with that. And I remember when actually on the board where I actually still sit, I'm still on the board of that school. When I was a couple years sober, they had us do this exercise where they ask you, you've probably done this at some point. I think it's like a corporate retreat thing where they ask you who you are over and over again. So like the first three times you can answer anyway, they like, who are you? I'm Laura Cathcart Robbins. I'm, you know, a mom, I'm blah, blah, blah. The second time you answer, you can't um, answer with a role. So you have to answer with something else. And then the third time you answer, you can't answer, you can't repeat any of your previous answers. So you go really deep, right? <laughs> we are atoms. We are energy yes. bouncing off of it. <laughs> exactly. But it was really a struggle for me because I had, as I talked about, I, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I gave up my PR company when my kids were born. And I, I was a full-time mom. I was a full-time wife. You know, I was not a writer professionally. I was not anything professionally. I was a mom professionally. Um, and I, I was, you know, identified heavily with being, you know, my ex-husband's wife. Like that was, and and that was a great identity. Mm-hmm. As soon as I said it, people were like, oh, wow. Right. You know, they saw me differently. They treated me differently because I was his wife. And that felt really good Mm-hmm. weird because I knew it wasn't about me, mm-hmm. but I still got all the goodies. I got all the perks of being, you know, in this marriage and, and being my, my kid's mom, like mm-hmm. my, my being their mom, you know, oh, they're such good boys. And they're so, oh, I love your son. Like that felt like credit for me. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I took all I have a son too. I get it. Yes. Yes. And (laughs) I'm sure there was a lot of ego feeding in that for me. Like it was, it felt really good. And to be kind of on this pedestal in my, in my community where I held a leadership position in the school community. And then in one fell swoop over a summer, get divorced and go to treatment for drugs and alcohol um, felt like all of a sudden I'm a nobody, you know, I'm not his wife anymore. My, my, my perfect motherhood will be under fire because what kind of perfect mother does drugs and goes to treatment? That's ridiculous. And, 
and I don't have a job. So I really don't have an identity. Mm. I compartmentalized that when I first got sober. I couldn't think about all that. I just had to do what was in front of me because it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Of course. But when I was in, so this is like I'm a couple months divorced and what I that that wait that story you're talking about, and a few months sober, and the boys are at practice, and I, you know, leave them at practice and run to the grocery store to get what we need for that night. And I'm there in front of the in the dairy section and I pull that milk carton out. And my hand, actually, I don't even pull it out. My hand hesitates before I can grab it. And I'm seized with this, this idea that this isn't for you. Who are you buying this for? Kids don't drink it. You don't like it. Who's it for? (laughs) And I start crying. Um, And I'm kind of paralyzed there. And, you know, like the very helpful people that are stocking the different cases, (laughs) Uh, one of them, like, I mean, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of, are you okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything? I think he said, is there anything I can help you with? I think that's Aww, what it was. That was sweet though, right? <laughs> Very <laughs> sweet. Nice to know there's some humanity left. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, they don't want people crying in their store. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Good for business. <laughs> I couldn't um, decide between milk and oat milk. It's horrible. <laughs> Um, but I, I had that realization, like, if this isn't for you, what is for you? What do you like? What do you want in your refrigerator? What do you want in your life? Who do you want to be? And it, it was all in those brief moments with my hand, you know, hesitating over a carton of milk, um, that, And I don't know if I would describe it as a crisis, but it was more of like a breakthrough, Mm. like a realization, like it broke through all the compartments that I had built to kind of keep myself safe. And I had this realization that this is something to look at now. You're a few months sober. You're a little bit out of this marriage. Start looking at who you are. And so um, that part of my work, of the many pieces of aspects of my work, and this is all spiritual work I'm talking about, or or health, like self-care. I don't know if I would call it spiritual, but but not logistical, not work for, mm-hmm. not, not transactional work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that work began then. Incredible. And do you feel grounded that you have found that sense of self? through that journey? Oh, I definitely know what I like now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but you were asking yourself bigger questions than the milk, right? So uh, I know what I like, not just to eat and to drink, but I know what I like in my life. I I don't say yes out of obligation anymore. Um, If I say yes to something that I don't want to do, you're going to be very you're going to very you're going to get a very clear explanation explanation as to why I'm doing it. Mm. Like I hate spa days. I hate baby showers and bachelorette parties. They're so not my thing. Okay. My friends know this about me now. Mm-hmm. I used to go anyway and just pretend like I like them. Now they know this about me. So when they invite me, it'll be with we'd love to see you there, but I understand how you feel about them. So if you don't want to show up, you don't have to. 
And then sometimes I'll say, no, I don't like them, but I'm coming for you because mm. I want to support you. I love so that. They know that I'm not there enjoying myself like everybody else, just ooing and eyeing over each baby gift that's opened, which I find to be torturous. Yes, <laughs> but, I'm there with but you. I am coming there because I love them and I want to support them. So I'm very clear about that so that there isn't any mistake. And um, and I'm clear about everything that I can that 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 I can be clear about anyway. Everything that I'm aware of, I'm clear about. It's uh, amazing the power of the word yes. Mm -hmm. um, and equally as such, the power of the word no. Yeah. And um, I know, I think it was Shonda Rhimes that wrote that book, My Year of Yes. Yeah. And um, I have often threatened to myself quietly. I haven't said it out loud, but I guess I am saying out loud now that I would like to write a book for myself that is a year of yes and a year of no. Mm, yeah. It's equally important. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's great that you found your a year of no. <laughs> yeah. Like when, when to say no, like you're for you, it was simultaneous, right? You always said yes to things you didn't like to do. And, and now you say uh, yes and no. Yes. Even in the same breath, but you, you understand. Um, uh, yes, I will come. No, I do not like the baby shower. Yes. I am coming for you. Like you have such clarity on it now, which is really great. Yes. And that, that is the result of this work and the distance, I think, for me from from drugs and alcohol i think that distance was uh painfully clear but made things painfully clear for a while and now that there's no pain involved it's just clear mm -hmm. are is there anything i'm not asking you laura oh um gosh i don't know i we didn't we didn't really talk about scott um we could talk about him a little bit if you want. Yeah, absolutely. Share. So the reason I I I like to talk about him for a variety of reasons, you know, like I said, we met in treatment in July of 2008. So it's almost 15 years now. And then, you know, the what we did was we he went back to Utah where he's from. I came back to L.A. Eventually, he moved here and lived separately from me. Um, for six years, we dated for six <laughs> years. And, um, and then we moved in together. We really wanted to take care of our respective kids. He has two daughters. I have two sons. Um, I wanted my sons to feel safe in their home. I had already, I, not I had already, but we had disrupted that safety by their dad not living with us anymore. And I wanted them to not feel like someone else moved in even though it wouldn't be to take his place, but just right. in that place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of people, you know, disagree. Like you've got to be, you've got to do you, you've got to find your happiness, but this is the way we chose to do it. So he was available to his daughters and I was available to my sons and I devoted myself to their care and attention during those years. And when I decided to write this book, which was in the summer of 2020. Um, he was kind of like, okay, we've got the podcast going, you know, we've got a, he, cause he produces the podcast. He's also my engineer. 
Uh, he's like oversee, he oversees all of the social media, the YouTube, the website, most of the marketing. In fact, all the marketing. I just show up with the mic and the guest. Like that's what Man, I, I want your job now. <laughs> Where's Scott? Can he come help me? Yes, yes. Where is Scott? <laughs> is he downstairs? Um, but when I decided to really write this book in earnest, when I had an agent who said, "How quickly can you write this?" Um, which happened in November of 2020, I, I was like, "Okay, hun." That's what I call him. If I'm going to get this done, I'm just going to devote myself to it. So my plan is to work on the podcast until 11, like do my meditation, do my workout, work on the podcast until 11, and then from 11 to 7, write. And I was like, is that okay with you? With that, that doesn't leave much time for us. And I'm aware of that, but I don't know how to get this done otherwise. I don't know how to do it piecemeal. I don't know if I would be able to complete it if I did it here and there. And and we really talked about it. He didn't just say, oh, yeah, I'm 100% supportive. We we really discussed the impact that it would have on our relationship. And we did that for a few days. And, you know, he came back to the table with like, I'm going to support you however you need to be supported during this time. And so I went to work and so did he. So he, you know, I worked on the podcast with him. Then he finished everything else. Then, Holly, I went vegan. Uh, <laughs> I went vegan three years ago. So he decided to go vegan with me after a couple of days of protest and <laughs> go grocery shopping. And a steak. Right. <laughs> he went grocery shopping while I was working. I He came home. He took care of everything in the house. He cooked me dinner every night that I was working, called me down for dinner at seven when it was time for me to knock off. And he did that the entire time I wrote this book. What a gift. What a gift. What a gift. We have a sober home. Yeah, he's been sober this time. You know, like we, we've been sober together. We have a meeting in our house, a recovery meeting every Saturday. So my kids have grown up in a sober home. Um, their dad's not sober. So they've also grown up in his home and there's very, you know, kind of just like typical drinking that happens there. It's not excessive. It's fine. But they know that both are possible. Mm -hmm. They know that you can absolutely ha have, a, you know, uh, uh, my ex-husband's side of the family is Jewish. So there is like, you know, all the high holidays, there's usually wine involved, Manischewitz, which I found <sighs> to be delicious. Oh my God, you're killing me. That is like the worst. That's like NyQuil to me. It's oh, awful. Nobody likes it. I no. wanted more of it. I loved it. It was like the sweetest grape juice. But anyway. That's because um, you were used to putting all the sugar in your coffee. Yes. <laughs> we'll circle back to that. So, but, um, so they've grown up with both. They know that I have a ton of fun. I love my trips and my vacations. You know, we have Sunday dinner at my house every weekend. I mean, every Sunday we have dinner here with his daughters, if they're in town, with my sons, with my mom, with my brother, with my son's girlfriends, like we gather and we have a great time every Sunday and there's nothing missing, you know, with the fact that I'm sober, they're not ashamed of it. They understand it. They understand why they're grateful for it and they don't need to talk about it. Like it doesn't need to be the subject of discussion, but they're happy to explain it to anybody who asks. 
Um, I've heard them do that in this very kind of matter of fact way. Mm-hmm. Um, usually brief. No, my mom doesn't drink anymore. You know, she's she she stopped drinking years ago. She got sober. And that's it. That's all the required explanation. They're great fans of Scott because he makes me happy. Mm. You know, so they want, obviously, I think, I don't know if obviously, but my boys want me to be happy. They're, they've moved on. You know, they've both moved out. They have their lives with their girlfriends. And I think it gives them a sense of solace knowing that Scotty is here with me. And I like being alone. Honestly, I love my own company. But um, but I, you know, I love having a companion as well. And I, I think that is helpful for them. I think that's comfort. Hmm. Definitely. I think so too. You just, I just love how centered you are. It's really amazing. Uh, I think that a lot of people will see themselves in the pages of your book. And I'm, I can't tell you how thankful I am that our interview landed on this day. It was maybe just a coincidence, but I'm so excited for you. This is so great. Congratulations on your book. Thank you, Holly. Thank you so much. This is awesome. I'm going to put all the stuff in the show notes uh, so everybody can find you and follow you and get your book. Um, I will go get mine as well because I haven't had a chance. So um, I look forward to learning even more about you, Laura. Thank you for coming on Coffee Culture. Thank you for having me. Would you like to join the party, coffee lovers? I have two ways for you. Please go over to YouTube now and subscribe to at Holly Shannon, and there'll be all the videos of this podcast there as well. What's the second way you can do that? You can leave a review with your ideas in Apple Podcasts. Either way, I would love it if you share a hot cup of connection and coffee culture with a friend. And if you'd like to support this indie podcaster, you can buy me a coffee. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, coffee lovers. This season is produced by Pale Blue Studios.